Good evening, and welcome to another episode of the Living Fiction Podcast, cheeky memoirs of how a DID system became a manipulator's personal puppet show. Twice! I am your host and the host of the Living Fiction System, Xanth C.L. Zeitstroke. The trigger warnings for this episode are as follows. Mentions of physical abuse... Toxic relationships, abusive relationships, alcohol, alcohol poisoning, and all of the unsavory details that can come with it. Drinking to cope, a very brief mention of possible drinking while driving, but I wasn't the one who did it, and suicide. Savannah, Georgia is actually trying to change the name of this bridge as I'm writing this. Apparently the bridge, like many of Georgia's landmarks, was named after a racist twat. Signs directing one to it now advertise the Savannah Bridge. It's actually quite a grand sight. I remember Neb driving its length as she first made the pilgrimage to Savannah in 2012. That rusted antique of a city, rising out of the river like a forgotten land. Since then, it served as a backdrop for Savannah's famed River Street. Mom once commented on it during a visit, her acrophobic self whirring her teeth on her lip, declaring, It's too tall. They should tear it down. The night that April cracked my ribs and Casper discovered my secret, I went home on my moped, finished a bottle of Bluefeld Racing, and slept. I dreamt of this bridge. Vividly. Repeatedly, I dreamt I was my inworld crow, hopping off of the ledge of the bridge, then spreading my wings to ride the air currents along the river below. By the time I awoke the next morning for my breakfast shift, the violent events of last night were oddly nebulous, snaking their way through my consciousness like smoke. I was stressed and in pain, my rib cage still sending shocks of pain through me as I walked. It did... Vaguely occurred to me that I should probably seek out a hospital, get checked out, but then that would be admitting that it happened, wouldn't it? We can't have that. I was most of the way through the shift. It was raining, one of those persistent sprinklings that the southeast rarely had, but that marked the northeast. I'd been venting to my fellow breakfast server, let's call her Molly, about the night before. I hadn't told her about the beating. I'd scarcely told myself. I don't think I'd ever even told her what the fighting was about. Just that April had a habit of wandering into the downtown areas on her own whenever she was pissed at me, phrasing it in a way that seemed more like a joke. It was making Molly laugh. I suppose I was laughing too. I might have had to. I looked at my phone. A text. It was April. Can I have one last kiss? I was somewhat under the impression that she and her dad had left already. That, and this is my first contact with April since the night before, I didn't know what sort of mood she'd be in. Anything from awkward apologies to wanting to string me up on one of the trees of Chatham Square, certainly. Is that your girlfriend? Molly called in a southern drawl across the room, smiling. What, you think she's gonna put herself up somewhere high and see if you come running? I thought of my dreams the night before. Well, if that's the case, I have a great recommendation for her. 
I asked April when she wanted to meet up. She said that she was already outside. I stepped out of the inn, blinking in the rain. It was no longer a sprinkle, but a full-on shower. And there she was. I can still recall almost exactly what she was wearing that day. It was so startling because she was in her pajamas. No coat, no umbrella. Flannel black and white pajama bottoms. A hoodie with some sort of band advertised on red and white font on the front. And a bunny-eared beanie with long black and red ears with safety pins poking out of it. Standing in the rain, auburn hair turned a dull copper just from being soaked through. Two thoughts went simultaneously through my head. One, that it was an easy 20-minute walk from where her dad always stayed, and two, that this rubbish could be bad for business. As I approached, I saw that she was sniffling. She looked a pitiful image, perhaps deliberately. Hey, you walked all the way here? April said nothing. She was pulling stray strands of hair out of her face, pointedly avoiding eye contact, as if she didn't walk all the way across town just to meet with me. I stared at her. So, you texted me that you came for a kiss? She nodded, still saying nothing. Which, I mean, was, I suppose, preferable to her yelling at me. I leaned in for a kiss, grazing her cheek. She shied away, nearly flinching, as if I were the one who had hurt her. My instincts of, you've been away from your job too long, were quickly pulling my inner fuck-it switch, and I went back inside. There is no emotion to feel other than stressed. Was she going to turn all of university against me for yelling at her for the first and only time? Sure, I could tell them that she hit me, but she was also so much more smaller than I am. I worked through the rest of my shift, unable to shake a coil of dread that settled in the very core of me. Well, that same year, a friend from work by the name of Sarah had recently been promoted from front desk to general manager. Now, Sarah is still, to this day, the most functional alcoholic I have ever met. She even figured out how to position her body precisely to be able to throw up in the tiny airplane bathroom we had at work. I've gone drinking with her before. She always made sure that you kept your wallet and that you'd wake up the next day, though after trying to keep up with her for a night of drinking, you really wish you hadn't woken up. Safe to say, Sarah was my first thought when I decided I needed a drink. I texted her that day, asking if she wanted to go out for a drink. Sarah declined, saying that after her promotion, it may seem unprofessional if she drank with an employee. As dissatisfied as I was, I decided that fair was fair and spent the next few hours cleaning my flat while knocking out an entire bottle of Bluefield. This is my second mention within this blog, by the way. Do you think they'll sponsor me if I go for the third? Then Sarah texted me back. She changed her mind and she would love to go out for drinks because she'd had a stressful week as well. I looked at the empty blue bottle of wine and texted her back. Uh, well, you'll have to pick me up. She did, and we went to distillery, where we ordered drinks, apps, and chatted. I think we went to one other place, but damned if I can remember where exactly. I'm sipping wine now to jog my memory, a sacrifice for my beloved audience, of course. Then we went to Lulu's Chocolate Bar. The blue field turned out to be seven glasses of wine. I had two more drinks at the distillery, 
One at a place unremembered and two cocktail glasses full of the mint chocolate martini at Lulu's. I was venting to Sarah about my girlfriend, about customers at the job, I, I think. It's purely speculation at this point, for I was freshly 21 and wasted. But at least my ribs had stopped hurting. Sarah dropped me off at my flat. Wait, was she driving? Fuck, I think she was. And it took probably uh, 15 minutes for my body to eject everything I had panic consumed over the past six hours or so. I'd had too much, clearly in the danger zone. My last detail, my last memory was throwing up over the side of the balcony and texting Cotton. I'm really drunk and throwing up a lot. Cotton, my dear friend of many years, replied with this sage advice. Breathe in, puke out. I woke up. I don't know how much later. It was still dark out. Yvonne, a local friend of both April's and myself at the time, had somehow gotten into my house and was shaking me awake. I remember a period of gentle admonitions and curling up, leaning against the edge of the wall. I'd tried to clean up vomit on the floor with wolf blankets. Yes, one of those wolf blankets. And could only sip water and watch as Yvonne took the unenviable task of cleaning it up properly. As the only uni student in my vicinity who had stayed during break, I'd wondered how she had miraculously heard about my predicament. The answer is less phenomenal than I'd perhaps supposed. Or maybe more so. In that mysterious blackout period, I'd apparently called April. When she didn't pick up, I'd left probably the best voicemail I'd ever left in my life. <laughs> hey, love. I am really drunk, and I'm throwing up a lot, and I called to tell you... It's really fucked up how you treated me the other night, and I've been really fucked up from dealing with it because of what you did to me. It's fucked up, and you can't treat me that way, and I've had five glasses of wine and five cocktails, so seven drinks. And I was calling to let you know that what you did to me last night, it was fucked up. And if I die tonight, it's out of spite. April had heard this voicemail and immediately called Yvonne, who was still in the area. Yvonne drove to my flat to revive me. I only knew that this was the voicemail I'd left April because she played it for me a month and a half later, staring me down as I tried not to laugh. But I get ahead of myself. I was mostly in and out of the inworld for the next week, Abilie having begged me to stay with him just to stay safe. I was in his apartment, shaken but surrounded by books. He played video games and I wrote my fiction on the couch next to him. This was somehow therapeutic. The next time I spoke to April, we spoke not of the voicemail, the cracked ribs, her bizarre episode in the rain. Somehow, the subject had ended up on my hair of all things. My hair, you see, had been a pet project of hers for, gods, two or three years at that point. I was hardly even allowed upkeep, much less dramatic changes to cut or color. I remember that this night, she had been responding coldly to me since I recovered from my frenzied fall from sobriety. I think I was just 
making conversation. Far be it for me to bring up my stinging ribcage or the drunken depths it driven me to. We just talked about my hair. That's what she said it. Well, unfortunately, I'm not going to get to cut your hair anymore. This caused confusion on my end. Had I done something to offend her during the last haircut? True, I can be tender-headed and fretful about results. I inquired to her urgently just why exactly she was making this announcement. I think I was honestly figuring that she'd gotten news that she'd gotten kicked out of uni and would thus conduct a murder-suicide scheme on her whole household. But then, after lengthy interrogation, she admitted it to me. I don't think I'll be able to cut your hair anymore because I'll be dead before I come back from break. She said that it'd be better off if she were dead. That was her conclusion from the other night. She was going to die in 30 days unless I was able to talk her out of it, tell her that life was worth living for, tell her that I didn't blame her for what happened, etc. Somehow, she managed to play the beat the clock against me in two different ways. You're allowed to laugh. It's, it's fine, really. I, that night, would write in my journal, Somehow, after being both abused and threatened, I find myself the villain in her dramatic little floor show. And seeing the wall I was up against, I decided that I would take a walk to the top of my favorite bridge. Yes, I can very well end it on a cliffhanger. What? Did you think I didn't survive? After all these years, I've discovered that fate doesn't pay that close of attention. <laughs> The night that April crapped, crapped. <laughs> <laughs> Just stop doing these drunk.